This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, Lord, we open up our hearts to you now. We pray, God, and just thank you for everything we've gotten to celebrate already today. Thank you for the beauty of this community and all of its diversity. Thank you for a growing team. Thank you for the work of Jesus on our behalf to make us into one new humanity. And thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for teaching us to pray. But Lord, we pray that you would do that thing that only your spirit does, that you would take what what could threaten to just be knowledge in our heads and you would move it to a new revelation in our hearts today. So come Holy Spirit and speak to us, your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you have a seat? So I was uh, sitting in the back seat of my mother-in-law's SUV just a couple days after Christmas, and we were circling the parking lot now for a second time. We apparently weren't the only people that were making a few exchanges from that uh, Christmas morning gift exchange that had just happened. And so we're circling, looking for that elusive parking spot in the shopping center a couple of days after the holidays, looking just for the first car to click the reverse lights on so that we can pounce on that vacant patch of concrete. And it was in that second time circling the parking lot that she said it, to no one in particular. Well, technically it was to someone in particular, but the way she said it sounded more like an afterthought than something meant directly. She said, Please, Jesus, help us find a parking spot. (laughs) Are you kidding me? I'm thinking this in the back seat. We are operating on a necessarily large vehicle for reasons I can only assume are purely aesthetic, despite the very well-known fact that vehicles like this overconsume limited natural resources, and you've got the audacity to ask for help from the God whose creation we are so thoughtlessly plundering? We're waiting approximately 120 additional seconds to walk inside to exchange a couple of garments that we don't need anyway, and you're gonna ask the God whose arrival provoked the command, anyone who has two shirts should share one with one who has none, for help in picking out a better, more tasteful piece of clothing for our already overstuffed closets? With a straight face. You're going to ask God to bend the arc of the universe in the direction of your shopping convenience when, statistically speaking, 690 million people are going hungry today, and we're probably going to throw out at least half of the leftovers that are in our holiday fridge that that are going to go bad if we don't. And you're going to ask that God, who probably is too busy addressing the hunger pangs of those people, for help with your shopping experience. The mall. That's another matter altogether because then there's the overwhelming likelihood that the garments that we're going to be exchanging today were made by people living under the tyranny of unjust labor practices and unfair wages. What about the prayers of the person who stitched the t-shirt we're exchanging? Isn't it their prayer that God should be listening to and not ours? Now my internal monologue, thank God I did not say any of that out loud to my mother-in-law. 
But my internal monologue was then interrupted by her voice. Yes, there's a spot. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> now that story is mostly hyperbole. All those events really happened, but I'm not quite that unbearably judgmental. I'm close, <laughs> but I'm not quite that bad. I tell that story because this is where so many of us get hung up when it comes to prayer. It's, it's in the asking. Jesus insists on asking, though. Jesus insists on asking for world hunger, hunger prayers and parking space prayers alike. He will not have it any other way. Right in the middle of a prayer that's as reverent as hallowed be thy name and as cosmic as kingdom come, that's as contrite as forgive us and as apocalyptic as deliver us from the evil one, Jesus wedges in something as unavoidably practical, circumstantial, and immediate as today's bread. And I find that freeing. That in the middle of a prayer that's as theologically rich as Jesus' exemplary prayer, he throws in something as common as today's lunch. Pete Gregg says, prayer means many things to many people, but at its simplest and most immediate, it means asking God for help. It's a soldier begging for courage, a soccer fan at the final, a mother alone in a hospital chapel. The Lord's prayer invites us to ask God for everything from daily bread to kingdom come. You see, friends, prayer at its simplest and most straightforward is asking God for help. But what are the guidelines to the help we sh can and should be asking him for? I mean, surely there are some sincere requests that are impractical enough or selfish enough that God just laughs them off, right? So where does my will stop and God's will begin? And how do I ask in a way that is in line with his eternal perspective? And what's worth praying about? And what's just life? And at the end of the day, does Jesus really care about parking spaces? So after a short break last Sunday for a Holy Spirit conference, which was phenomenal, by the way. So many stories continued to roll in from what, what a great weekend. It was so much fun. But, but after a short break from that, we're back to our current teaching series and practice, which we've titled, Teach Us to Pray. That's a question that Jesus' disciples posed to him, and in response, he just started praying. Today, we typically call that prayer, which we read as our teaching text today, the Lord's Prayer. And it is the foundation on which a rich, wild, free prayer life is built. And so we've been making our way through this prayer, reading the same teaching text week after week because we're picking it apart line by line. And today we come to give us today our daily bread. Now these sorts of prayers, the sort where we ask God for what I, the praying person, need or want, the daily bread kind of prayers are technically called petition. And there's no kind of prayer that's more instinctive than petition, than asking. It, people in childhood typically pray their first prayers of this particular variety. But there's also no kind of prayer that we grow to have a harder time with than asking. I mean, be still and contemplate, yeah, I know that I need that. Give thanks, definitely, that's good for the soul. Intercede for others, I've got your back, tell me what's going on. Ask God for what I want. Well, does God even care to hear that? I mean, he knows what I need. Surely that's enough, right? He knows what's best for me. Eugene Peterson says, praise and thanksgiving are always appropriate, certainly. And it's certain that our final prayers will all be praise. 
heaven reverberating with our amens and hallelujahs. So practicing the scales of praise is always a good idea. But here and now, we mostly ask. Jesus taught us to ask. Give us today our daily bread. Bound up in that phrase, that simple phrase, are the huge themes of gratitude, control, relationship, and empowerment. So that's a map of where we're headed this morning. So if you would, begin with me with the theme of gratitude. Is he asking or bringing our request to God, it is the hinge that the whole prayer turns on. It is the phrase that opens up Jesus' exemplary prayer like a door. Now this prayer, it's broken into two sets of three petitions, turning on the hinge phrase, on earth as it is in heaven, that's wedged right into the middle of the prayer, holding the whole thing together like the binding of a book. The first half of the prayer is all about getting us into God's reality. It leads us out of the constant clutter that's bombarding our everyday lives so that we can see however blurry from God's perspective as we pray. So the first half of the prayer invites us beyond our narrow perspective into a holy imagination so that we can participate in the reality of God and that changes the requests that follow. The pronouns tell the whole story. It goes, your name, your kingdom, your will. You see, the first half of the prayer, it's all your, your, your. So this is how Jesus teaches us to pray. Start by giving your attention, your full attention and your whole imagination to God. And the prayers that will come from that place will be based on his reality, not your circumstances. That changes things. The second half of the prayer, though, it takes a sharp turn. We move from getting in on God's reality to inviting God to get in on ours. Again, the pronouns tell the story. You'll see it suddenly say, give us, forgive us, rescue us, 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 us. Do you see the turn? The prayer is your, 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 us, us, us. And what's in the middle? It's this phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. See, asking, prayer at its simplest and most straightforward is the hinge the prayer turns on. And that hinge sounds like the phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, Two claims are hidden in that short turn of phrase. The first claim is that heaven is the engine room for our prayers. Everything we can think of to ask for finds its source in heaven in the reality of God. The second claim is that earth, the very ground we stand on while uttering our requests, is where all the action happens. So heaven is the engine room, but earth is where our prayers are answered and made visible. Earth is the atmosphere heaven invades in response to our prayers. Again, Peterson writes, prayer involves us deeply and responsively in all the operations of God, Prayer also involves God deeply and transformatively in all the details of our lives. So prayer is giving our full attention to God and changing our perspective, and it's joining God in his redemption in the world and in me. Prayer is silent and it's listening and it's contemplative, and prayer is wild and charismatic and loud, but prayer at its simplest and most childlike, the binding holding the whole thing together, is asking. In Luke 11, immediately after the Lord's Prayer, uh, in Luke's version of the prayer, Jesus illustrates that prayer by talking about a neighbor who is in need of, wait for it, bread. 
Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up to give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up to give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up to give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. So according to Jesus, prayer is not complicated, it's simple. And it is not found in eloquent speeches or in religious platitudes. Prayer is unpretentious and practical and straightforward. Prayer is honest needs and humble requests spoken to God in earthy everyday language. It's daily bread language. And Christians today, we tend to fill our prayers with euphemisms and phrases that are only ever heard between dear God and amen. At some point, it's like the church invented a prayer language and then it's been passed on to all of us. Jesus teaches us to pray in the same way that that we speak at the deli counter or on the street corner, that we speak in business meetings or over drinks with friends. Because when the language of our prayers stays grounded, our prayers tend to stay grounded as well. Ordinary language keeps us from praying lofty prayers that usher in the activity of God into some far off abstract place. They keep our prayers grounded to the concerns of today, to what I'll eat, to who I'll meet, to what I'll do, and to how I'll feel about it all along the way. You see, when he teaches us to pray, Jesus unmistakably rips prayer out of the stained glass ornate temple and grounds it in the practical everyday peasant lives of those who are asking the question. Prayer is not the ascent of the soul to some other far-off religious place. It deals directly with our basic day-to-day needs and wants. You see, if you pray for an end to global hunger, but you neglect to say grace over the pineapple fried rice that you pick up, take out for dinner on the way home tonight, then you miss out on a lot. And if you pray for environmental sustainability, but you fail to whisper a prayer of thanksgiving at the summit of a Saturday afternoon hike, your God is smaller for your trouble, not larger. And if you pray for justice in the fashion industry, but then neglect to notice and to pray for the person working the holiday double shift at H&M ringing up your purchase, you're missing the forest for the trees. And if you effortlessly judge the parking space prayers of someone else, Assured that you know the priorities of the incomprehensible God, your spiritual life is suffocating and restricted while her God is ever involved, interested, and present. See, if you pray only for the big things, exclusively limiting your conversation with God to objectively noble requests, you live a cramped spiritual life with little room for the actual God that we meet in Jesus. What I'm trying to show you, friends, is that gratitude is the God-given reward for those who can stomach praying for small things. And as my mother-in-law pulled into that parking space, there was gratitude in her heart and there was bitterness in mine. Gustavo Gutierrez, the Peruvian philosopher who popularized liberation theology, says the basic diet of the healthy soul consists of prayer, justice, and gratitude. And it's possible, though I think quite unlikely, but it's possible that I had a proper view of justice and had a considerable point to make about prayer in that back and forth volley of my own internal monologue in the back seat. But my soul was shriveled from a lack of gratitude while hers was healthy and expansive. Ronald Rollheiser says to be a saint is to be fueled by gratitude, nothing more and nothing less. 
Only one kind of person transforms the world spiritually, someone with a grateful heart. When you picture the face of God, what expression does he wear? However you answer that question will tell you a whole lot about your own spirituality. Is the God of your imagination stern, serious, determined, even angry? Or maybe your vision of God is more aloof, uninterested, distant, apathetic. Julian of Norwich, the 13th century saint who authored the earliest surviving book in the English language by a woman, described God as completely relaxed and courteous. He was himself the happiness and peace of his dear friends. His beautiful face radiating measureless love like a marvelous symphony. See, she imagined God grateful and at peace in the company of friends, content to love them, love radiating off God's face in a supernatural smile. Gratitude is a practice and a virtue that is at the very heartbeat of the spiritual life, and there is a pathway to gratitude that's hidden in prayer. Jesus called it, give us today our daily bread. It's ask and keep asking. Ask for big things and for small things. Pray kingdom come and grace before supper. Because when we pray the Jesus way, when we keep our prayers as common as everyday small talk, we put one foot in front of the other on the pathway to gratitude. It is not only about thank yous and counting blessings though. Because this asking variety of prayer, it's also a battle cry. It is a declaration of war against one of the soul's fiercest enemies, and that's control. So regardless of your Enneagram number or Myers-Briggs type or stage of life or personality structure, everyone wants control. Every last one of us lives with this insatiable desire to get control over our own lives, an inescapable weakness for that original lie that was planted in the imagination of humanity all the way back in Genesis. You can be your own God. And like every variety of fallenness, control is nothing more than a good desire out of order. So control is a surface level symptom of a soul level desire for something good. It's driven by desire for fruitfulness. We want to live consequential lives. We want to make a marked difference in the world. We want to matter in both a personal and a profound way. We want to be fruitful. That's a good desire. But when we clench our jaws and we put that desire into action through control, we end up not fruitful, but exhausted and overwhelmed. The millennial generation of which I am a part is the most socially conscious, globally minded, justice-oriented generation in recent memory. We're also the most mentally ill and chronically unhappy. The Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker wrote a book called Enlightenment Now that shot up the charts a few years ago. Bookstores could hardly keep it in stock. And the premise of that book is that the world is better today than it's ever been. That when you measure poverty, literacy, opportunity on a global scale, we are far, we're moving up and to the right. But then pushback came on the heels of popularity like it always does. And the pushback sounded like this. Yeah, all that may be true, Dr. Pinker, but those are the wrong metrics. Those stats don't measure what makes a good life. They don't measure purpose and meaning and fulfillment and joy. Your calculations are accurate, but you're measuring the wrong things. 
You see, here's the paradox of our time. It's never been better objectively. So I should feel grateful, hopeful, passionate, and joyful, but I'm perpetually exhausted, forever overwhelmed, and incurably anxious. What his diagnosis misses is that beneath the surface of our objectively great lives, we are deeply unsatisfied. I am one in a generation of people doing exactly what we want with our lives, channeling our energy exactly according to our own preferences and chosen pursuits for global good, and yet we are, we are exhausted, overwhelmed, and anxious. Those are the symptoms of a good desire out of order. And that is why ours is an era of quiet crisis. All of our progress, our creature comforts, our upward mobility and our moral superiority, it's not dealing with the core of who we are. That's a quiet crisis. Not just within the larger culture, but even inside our doors within the church. Many have a subconscious internal monologue with God that goes something like, I, I wanna live a fruitful and meaningful life, but I'm not sure I can trust God. I mean, I know I can trust him as the answer to my big theological questions, but I'm not sure if I can trust him with my dreams and my hopes and my plans. I can trust him ultimately, but I doubt I can trust him immediately. I can trust him with the eternal state of my soul, but I doubt that I can trust him with today. So I'm white-knuckling my day-to-day -day life with everything I've got. I'm micromanaging my surroundings. I'm carefully planning my next step, and, and I'm coding my perception just as I want to be perceived. See, when we trust God with our eternal worldview, but not with today's experience in that world, when we trust him as the God of kingdom come, but we don't trust him as the God of daily bread, we are falling victim to the lure of control. It's a good desire within us that's fallen out of order. And how many of us are exhausted, overwhelmed, and anxious because we're trying to satisfy good desires by the wrong means? And it's for this very reason that Jesus teaches us when we pray to make sure to include the phrase, give us. That phrase, give us, it's the ancient Greek word, didomai. Can you say that? Now, now that speaks of a sacrificial kind of giving. Elsewhere, it's often translated as offer or offering throughout the New Testament. It's the very word that Jesus uses when Matthew later writes, Jesus called the 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every disease and sickness. Now, how did Jesus ultimately give us the gift of his shared authority and power through the Holy Spirit? By sacrifice, by offering his life that we might have life. And again, it's the word Jesus uses later in Matthew's gospel when he says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, give us is not an entitled, whiny, privileged plea for additional uh, comfort to a God who is exhausted by all of our incessant pleading. Give us is an offensive weapon. It is the weapon by which we wage war against control. It is the weapon by which we sever ties to the serpent's lie. You can be your own God. It's the weapon by which we keep our wandering hearts from taking good desires to the wrong source. And it's the weapon by which we combat latent anxiety and unnecessary stress and crippling worry. The cross on which Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many might have seemed like weakness at first, but it was revealed as the greatest source of strength just three days later. 
And when we pray, give us, when we ask God for what we need and God what, ask God for what we want today, it may seem like weakness at first, but it's strength in the kingdom that is ruled by the suffering king. See, give us is the kind of prayer that tugs at the cross, shaking loose the rewards of Jesus' victory shared freely with the likes of us. Give us is not just a phrase for little children, it is a weapon in the hands of warriors. And daily, as we ask, he weans us off our addiction to our own independence, our insistence on living under the illusion of what we deeply desire, the, the illusion that we can feed that to ourselves all on our own. See, our requests to God, they are not the pleas of spoiled children and they're not the shaking cup of a beggar. Daily bread prayers are counterformation. They're a reminder that we are not in charge, that we are not in control. Albert Camus says the real revenge, the full frontal attack on the demons that haunt us, is not to become pious by our standard of piety, but to become madly happy. And prayer replaces control with trust. It replaces chronic anxiety with mad happiness. A God-given desire is only fulfilled by God-given means. But maybe a few of you are thinking, but why do we need to ask in the first place? I mean, if your Bible's open to Matthew chapter six, we read our text from, you probably noticed that the verse right before Jesus starts the Lord's Prayer, he says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And if that's the case, Jesus, why do we need to ask at all? I mean, isn't this whole daily bread thing just an unnecessary formality? There's a fascinating exchange uh, in John chapter five where Jesus approaches the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. Now ancient superstition had it that this pool had healing properties. So many believed that the first to touch the water after each bubbling swell would receive healing for their own ailments. So when Jesus approaches this pool, he encounters an invalid, a man who's been handicapped for 38 years to this point. And to him, Jesus poses an interesting question. Do you want to get well? Now that question is equal parts tender, and forgive my irreverence here, completely unnecessary. I mean, isn't it obvious, Jesus? This man is a disabled man lying next to a healing pool. Uh, if you're Jesus, a rabbi with a reputation for miraculous healing, an invalid lying beside a healing pool is more or less a gimme. This is like an EMT arriving on the scene of a car accident, going up to the bleeding, injured victim, and then stopping to say, <clears throat> do you want to get well? Put him in the ambulance, man. You know what the guy needs. Why are you forcing him to verbalize it to you? But the unnecessary nature of the question is then, of course, only compounded by the fact that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God, who as Jesus has just told us, knows what we need before we ask him. So when Jesus says to the invalid, do you want to get well, it's more like he's saying, I want to hear you say it. And that's a pattern that replays itself in scene after scene in the life of Jesus. When Jesus turns water to wine at the wedding at Cana, woman, why do you involve me? When he raises the deceased daughter of the synagogue leader Jairus, why all the commotion and wailing? 
When he opens the eyes of the blind man Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus repeatedly poses questions with obvious answers, questions that invite others to put into verbal language what it is that they really and most deeply want. I want to hear you say it. From cover to cover, the scriptures make the comprehensive point that when it comes to prayer, God wants us to ask. He wants to hear you and I say it. Before acting, Jesus searches for consent. Charles Spurgeon says, Jehovah says to his own son, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. If the royal son of God cannot be exempted from the rule of asking that he may have, you and I cannot expect the rule to be relaxed in our favor. Asking is the rule of the kingdom. If you may have everything by asking and nothing without asking, I beg you to see how absolutely vital prayer is. So then the question is, why is God so bent on asking? And I believe that there are two primary reasons for God's insistence on hearing us say what he already knows we need. And they are relationship and empowerment. So first, relationship. The biblical story begins in relationship. Perfect relationship within the triune God when there was nothing else. God was a perfect communion of shared love. And then creation is born out of an abundant overflow of that love. So the motive behind Genesis creation is much the same as the motive behind a happily married couple who's deciding to have children. And then the biblical story ends in relationship. Redemption is a return to Eden intimacy. It's one in which you and I are called bride and Jesus is called bridegroom or husband. And currently the work of the church includes mission and evangelism and perseverance and justice, but a day will come, an ending to this chapter in the story when all of those things will be done away with. And so heaven is at least this. It's an eternity spent with God, with no work left to do. The mission's been accomplished, the evangelism is done, justice is now the forever reality, and there is no longer any need for perseverance. God's end game is just to be with you, to enjoy you forever, and to be enjoyed by you forever. In other words, God's end game is relationship. And communication is essential to relationship particularly because asking insists on vulnerability. When you ask anyone else for anything else, you you risk disappointment or maybe even rejection. And until we ask God for anything, he cannot disappoint us or surprise us. We cannot build trust with God without asking. We can't relate to God if we never ask. Without asking, God is something less than a free relational being. He's a machine that delivers on our desires. Maybe even before we become conscious of those desires that live within us. Asking is the means by which we build a relationship with God that he designed us to enjoy at first. And that is why when Jesus taught us to pray for daily bread, he drove the point home with that story of a neighbor in need of bread walking next door to ask for a favor. Jesus chose a story that seems too simple, too straightforward, too everyday for something as mystical and grand as prayer. And yet that is the very story from the divine imagination of Jesus that illustrates petition. It's a decidedly relational story. It's as comfortably relational as a neighbor ringing her neighbor's doorbell to ask for a pinch off of her sourdough starter 
or of you walking next door to ask for a few extra buns for a summer barbecue that you've already got underway. You see, talking to God is not an awkward meeting with an old sage whose beard stretches to the floor. It is is as casual as small talk. And asking is the experience of prayer at its most simply relational. And that brings us to empowerment. Because relationship is God's end game, but empowerment is his plan for getting us there. Jesus did not merely come to redeem the world, but then to invite the likes of us, fallen men and women, to participate with him in that redemption. And there is perhaps no greater means of of participation in redemption, of empowerment, than petitionary prayer or asking prayer. The great Swiss theologian Karl Barth said, God does not act the same way whether we pray or not. Prayer exerts an influence upon God's action, even upon his existence. Richard Foster wrote this about prayer. We are not locked into a preset deterministic future. Ours is an open, not a closed universe. We are co-laborers with God, working with God to determine the outcome of events. Now quotes like that are bound to make more than just a couple of you squirm. But look no further than the Bible to discover the scandalous claim of empowerment through prayer. In Exodus chapter 32, we get a glimpse of Moses' prayer life. And for context, for the prayer I'm about to read you, God is very unhappy with Israel at this point. And his anger is well-founded because after freeing them from slavery, parting the Red Sea, feeding them with bread from the sky and water that pours out of rocks, they've begun to worship another god. And so God, in his anger, uh, voices that to Moses, and then Moses, in response to God's anger, prays. Here's his prayer. Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land that I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Now the key phrase in Moses' prayer is by your own self. Moses is calling God back to his own character. He's holding God to God's word. He's reminding God who God really is by your own self. See, he's not just pleading with God to give him what he wants. It's more like he's reminding God of what God really wants. And then check out God's response, the very next verse. Then the Lord relented and did not bring uh, on his people the disaster he had threatened. Wait, what? Moses confronted God and won? Yeah, something like that. And the word relented in this passage, it's the Hebrew naham, can you try that one? And that can be translated as changed his mind or even as repented. God nahamed. God changed his mind. God repented. Really? That's really what it says. Now this does not mean that God felt guilty or was caught in sin and then went to confession. Naham does not mean that God had done anything wrong. It means that God was moved emotionally. See, Moses' prayers moved the creator of the universe at an emotional level. That's what the Bible teaches. Aristotle famously called God the unmoved mover, but the God Moses prayed to is more like the moved mover. 
He's moving heaven and earth, but he's also movable. He hears us, and he actually listens and actually cares. He responds. And this idea of God may seem pretty radical, but that's only because many of us have a conception of God that is more formed by Aristotle than it is by Moses. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a ton of mystery here. There are so many unanswered questions when it comes to this relational interaction of prayer. I mean, sure, that's how it happened with Moses, but what about Malachi? I mean, Malachi heard God say this, I, the Lord, do not change. That seems pretty straightforward. But then there's Hosea, to whom God said, my heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. How on earth can both of those be true? Because God is a relational being to know, not a formula to master. And when it comes to any relational being, you're gonna have to get comfortable with a degree of mystery. You will never know anyone so thoroughly that you've eliminated the mystery in that relationship. I will know and love my wife for the rest of my life, and still there will be mystery to her. I will never eliminate the mystery. I'll never get to the end of her. I won't eliminate the mystery even in my most intimate human relationship, and neither will I ever eliminate the mystery in my relationship with God. And look, of course, it would be very dangerous to form a whole theology out of this one Moses prayer, but there is a definite biblical pattern that is supported by this passage, and it goes something like this. God responds to his own character. That is his nature. It's been said before that God is more friend than formula, meaning he's a relational being with emotions and personality. He's not an operating system with rules and procedures. And the tendency in our modern churches is to strip the Bible of all its mystery and reduce it to a set of abstractable principles. The tendency is to read something like Exodus 32 and then think, wow, God and Moses had something really special back then, and then continued to lob up half-hearted prayers to Aristotle's God as if Moses was some sort of spiritual superstar with more access to God than we have today. The Bible is not a book to tell you how other people used to relate to God. It is a book, the Bible's an invitation to experience. It is the historical record of God's interaction with his people, and it should set the foundation for our expectation for interaction with that very God. See, the prayers of Moses tell us definitively this much, that God listens and God cares. God cares so much, in fact, that he is moved emotionally to action by our prayers. This is why Dallas Willard writes, God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that he is answering our prayer when, all he, is, when he is only doing what he was going to do anyway. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. And to those thinking that all of this might just be some kind of Old Testament exception and that God got a much stronger backbone and started standing his ground after this one confrontation with Moses, take that up with the New Testament writer James who pastorally wrote to the common believer in the early church, you do not have because you do not ask God. It is an inescapable New Testament reality that God freely shares his power along relational lines and that asking in prayer is one of the primary ways we experience that power. Now, of course, there are times when God uses prolonged waiting and silence and suffering to form something essential within the inner life of the praying person. That's the next teaching series. 
There, there is so much that we have to learn through the contemplative tradition. And as I've said before, the greatest answer to prayer is when the, the praying person is reformed from the inside out into the answer to their own prayer. And all of that being said, God also insists on miracles. It is an article of the Christian faith traced all the way back through both biblical and church history that God sometimes breaks into our world supernaturally, meaning God violates the laws of nature in response to the prayers of his people. It is in biblical history that God shakes the temple floor, that he stands up the paralyzed, that he heals the sick, that he frees the addict, that he delivers the demonized, and he throws open the cell door of the imprisoned. Now he's a relational God, so there's not a formula to this, there's not an always all the time, and we all, if we follow him for any length of time, will know the suffering kind of prayer and the miraculous kind of prayer. But we need, what we need to focus on today is the fact that there is a miraculous kind of prayer. There is a yes and a yes and kind of response. God reforms us most deeply through prayer and God distributes supernatural power through prayer. So is there a practice that helps us to step deeper into both empowerment and relationship, a way of praying that wages war against control and opens our souls up in gratitude? Yes. And our daily bread practice is up right now on our website. Now at Bridgetown Church, we believe in it, the church has to be expressed in at least two spaces. Church around a stage, that's what we're doing right now. And the church around a table, where we meet midweek in Bridgetown communities. All of our practices are worked out in Bridgetown communities midweek. And all of our teachings are aimed at practice in those communities. So if you're not in a community, you're stopping short of the full invitation in the life of this church. So we want to invite you in. The way in is through basics, of course, we do three times a year, and it starts today. So come and join us. But I want to close here for now. Depicting the God on the receiving end of all of this asking Jesus invites us to do. He says this, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? As an illustration of God's heart towards us, Jesus offers the image of a father who likes to give his kids what they need and what they want. In a world of such obvious need and pain with so much brokenness to mend and so much justice to do and so much salvation to bring, God enjoys not only redeeming the wrongs of creation, but he also enjoys giving good gifts to his children. And I'm reminded of a day not that long ago when I was arriving home in the evening from what was a particularly trying day. In a single day, I had met with the largest food and security donor in the city about the possibility of mobilizing the church to combat a growing hunger crisis. And then I participated in a meeting of ministers that were assembled to combat the still prevalent systemic racism in our country. And then I counseled a couple who had discovered infidelity in their marriage, producing broken trust and deep pain that very week. And as I made my way home from that day with all the brokenness and need of our fallen world so apparent to me, all of the consequences of that brokenness still swimming around in my weary imagination as I made my way home, I got to my front door and I jiggled the keys out of my pocket to unlock the door. And as I was getting the keys, the little sound of the chime awakened something from within and I heard this tiny little voice of my three-year-old Simon go, oh, Dad's home! 
And when I opened the door, he was already running to me and just grabbed a hold of me and hugged me. And then Hank threw open the door to his bedroom and just immediately said, Dad, can we have ice cream tonight? <laughs> and just instinctively, without even thinking about it, I was like, yeah, buddy. Let's have ice cream tonight. The world's messed up. I'm doing the best I can to help more than I hurt. There's plenty of redemption to still work out both in me and around me and still in the face of all of that brokenness and need, I like to give my kids ice cream sometimes. I love to say yes to what they want. God is Father. He's got a lot going on, a whole lot more than we could grasp at any given moment and he still loves to give us what we want. Maybe even parking spaces. Ask. That's all he wants from us. <laughs>